I don't want the government keeping track of queer people just because they're queer. But if there was a person who could control the atmosphere and create oh, storms and fly go. around. Welcome to You're an Child's an Idiot, the podcast where we look back on the things from our childhood and wonder if they were any good to begin with. My name is Damon. I'm DJ. Good job. Hello, DJ. How was that? How did I do? It was great. Be I, honest. I on always, a scale from zero to please <laughs> tell me. I do always spring the intro on you. It's always like, you do it. So It always startles me. And your it's like I've never been on a podcast before, despite this being our 169th. Nice. Nice. Which 169 is if just someone's watching, just off in the corner. <laughs> please hey, leave one. Everybody's got a kink, right? <laughs> so listen, this is going to be easy for you because this is like one of your favorite movies, if I recall This correctly. is- We're watching Roger Rabbit, by Friend the way. of the show, LT, sprung the question on me that I've been rehearsing for my entire life. She asked me what my favorite movies are. I immediately blanked, like I had never seen a movie before. Like I was an <laughs> Amish kid on Rumspringa. I was like, what's a movie? And could not remember you anything. You really have been preparing for that question. You like, it's like someone asks you like, I don't know. Can you just list 24 character actors from the 90s? You're like <laughs> cracking your neck and your knuckles. You're like, can I ever? And then <laughs> that's my version of a bar fight. You just see someone fly through a window, but followed behind them was the name of Bill Pullman. <laughs> yes, this is one of my favorite movies. This is one of my also, I mean, there's there's part of me that cannot hide the fact that this is a nostalgic movie for me. This is probably my first memory of going to a movie theater. We went, it was 1988, we went over two houses down to pick up Gerald Guzak, who was coming with us, and we all went to see Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the movie theater. Gerald Guzak is a real person, but I like him also as a name because he's just enough name. Polishness that it's like, ah, I know exactly where this was happening. It was Long Island. <laughs> Got it. So it's one of my earliest film memories. But I'm also like a cartoonist and I'm really into yeah. animation. And so this idea that, you know, cartoon characters are like living among us is like forever tapped into a part of my brain that worked tremendously for me. Was that something that like you wished would come true? Like when you were little, like cartoon Before I like saw this movie? I was going to say, because if it was, I bet this movie disabused <laughs> you of that fantasy. This movie is- <laughs> Oh, some of these characters are really annoying when you actually get them out in the open into the 3D world. This movie is kind of scary, if I remember correctly, and very creepy and very visceral. Like not scary, like I'm scared to watch it, but scary and like for, like they really for lean kids. into- Yeah, they really lean into the idea of like, what would it actually be like? You know, to have these cartoon characters, it'd be freaky as hell because they're like zip zapping all over the place. They're bebopping the scatting all over me. Yeah, I remember. Th I think we talked about this when we were when we watched Witches. But this is one of those movies that I loved, and you and I are both scaredy cats when it comes to movies. Yeah, yeah. we actually literally like when we see a scary movie, we bite our nails like a typewriter. You know. <laughs> But this is one of those movies where I would show it to other people so excited and I would they'd be like, this movie freaks me out. <laughs> Especially like the end when Judge Doom like has his big reveal and he like gets flattened by a steamroller and is walking around. I mean, that is Uncanny Valley because he's still a three-dimensional object. He's not a tune yet. His tuneness yeah. is not revealed. So it's just like, this is some weird Gumby shit going on right now. But this is one of those movies that is scary, but like did not scare me. Whereas... Any movie that is inherently scary, like a slasher movie, I'm like, absolutely not. No. The trailer is my thrill ride. I'll just send Tyler to tell I'm me good. what happens. I distinctly remember when he like kills the shoe, mm. which like shows like what a threat he is, right? Because he's like right. got this tune, it's an innocent, and he just kills it. And that is a memory that scarred me forever. And I'll never forget Christopher Lloyd. That's the one that also comes up a lot with this movie. I remember as I kept being blown away that? that Doc Brown is Judge Doom and vice versa, that I could not wrap my brain around it, that these are the, the same actor, that Christopher Lloyd is both characters. You just hadn't discovered that that could be done? That a person just needs to shave their hair or wear a white <laughs> wig, and that's pretty much all you need to do. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I could place it. I think because they're both 
they still both are not Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> like Christopher Lloyd right. looks like Professor Plum in Clue, yeah, at least right. in this era. He does not either look as like Doc Brown or Judge Doom. So they're just so far on different extremes of him that I could not find yeah. the mean Christopher Lloyd. Like what is <laughs> what is the man between these? I feel like Gary Oldman has the same problem where I'm like, what do you look like though, sir? Yeah. When you're not dressed as Dracula or Winston Churchill, what do you look like on a Saturday morning if I just like came over for coffee? Kind of like the the Tom Hardy of it all too. Like they, they get deep into like a weird looking costume or a weird right. makeup or something. Except Tom Hardy is a stone cold fox. So I know exactly what he looks like at any given moment. <laughs> Speaking of sexual awakenings, how did Go you feel on. about Jessica Rabbit? Jessica did it Rabbit do anything is for the- you? Did you no, fake it? No, absolutely doing not. I knew it, it do, did something for people, generally speaking, people. Right. Yeah. Um, and I knew that was her reason for existence, but it did nothing for me. In my defense, not that I need to defend presumed homo or heterosexuality, <laughs> but I was like seven. So give me a little credit. Yeah. She also did nothing for me, but it was because it's a cartoon. <laughs> I remember like my dad would very make, little. I mean, not super creepy comments, but would like, you know, whenever Jessica Rabbit like came on screen, like he was like, uh, uh, uh. He would, his head would turn into a wolf and he would howl. Is that normal? <laughs> then he would pull his ear and his eyes would work like a lottery jackpot thing. And then <laughs> coins would come out of his mouth. Is that normal for people's yeah. dads? I'm just yeah, that's, trying to gain that's just an average that. experience. And then he would hit his head with his shoe. Yeah, I remember Jessica Rabbit being a thing, but it was, I don't know. That's the part I'm most uncomfortable about this movie is like, yeah revisiting Jessica Rabbit as just a character. I'm going to be honest. I am uncomfortable at every aspect of this movie. Really? It made me very comfortable when it came out. I'm hoping that this watching, this viewing, I have not seen this movie. I probably saw bits and pieces of it because you would rewatch it or pieces of it every once in a while. Mm-hmm. It's not like a every year kind crazy of Crazy bird. Not like a crazy, not like I was a serial killer. No, it was like a movie that you liked. So you would watch it occasionally. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay to like things. But like, I don't, have fond memories of this. I have creepy memories of this. And I'm hoping that this watching makes me sort of appreciate some of the things and not be so uncomfortable about it. Because it's not, it's mostly on purpose, right? It's kind of zany in the sense that like cartoons and like, especially this era of cartoon that we're kind of exploring here is, you know, especially zany, but like, what would it be like if you actually brought them into real life? It would be ridiculous. And kind of creepy and scary if they were like- One could describe it as madcap. Mm, zany. Yeah. Loony. Hijinks would ensue. But I like, we watched that, the short, not that long ago. There was, I can't remember what movie- I think it was with Honey- with. Well, did we watch the one for Dick Tracy? I don't remember. We might have also watched the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, I think is more glued to that. If you watch Honey, yeah. I Shrunk the Kids, you have to watch the short, but we're with Dick Tracy and the other one, you don't have to- if you're ever putting on a far off place like you would, you don't have to watch yeah. Trail Mix Up, the short that was attached to it in theaters. I think I will save this because much like our Lord of the Rings episode, I have a lot of knowledge about the making of and a lot of right. the people attached to bring that to, in later after. I'll bring that in yeah. later because yeah. I'd like to talk about the animation director, Dick Williams, Richard Williams who is an iconoclast and a bit has a particular view of animation and all sort of the, like the background about like, no, 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 no. He is, I mean, he seems like a very nice guy, but he has a very particular view of animation that I think really works for Roger Rabbit and otherwise completely tanked and his career. Oh, gotcha. We can talk about that later. Something, a yeah. thrilling vision of things to come and later in the episode. breadcrumb, while we're still in memories, like what is it about this movie that made it kind of like stick so much? Was it just the sort of combining of, because there were other animated features at this time but this was the first or at least the first major one around that time that like combined the two yeah well i mean we've talked about space jam cool world cool world i have not i've actually never seen cool world so i can't speak to it but everything i've heard about it has i'll say prevented me from seeing cool world i've never seen it but i feel like this one unlike space jam which very much feels like a commercial much like its origins this feels I mean, even though there's a lot of, you know, IP, to use the terms of our yeah. our age, that goes into this, it does feel like a labor of love and that they were just like, I really like this era of animation, right. you know, Disney it. at this time, Warner Brothers at this time, as well as like Tex Avery, especially. And I want to make a 
film noir movie. I want to make an animated movie and a special effects movie. And on top of that, I want it to be the best of those movies. So it's like a fairly good film noir sort of pastiche. It's a really great like example of animation like at its best. And then it's like a special effects movie. Like they really integrated special effects in a pre-CGI era. They made these characters like live amongst human beings. And it's kind of amazing to watch. I think they did everything in a level that it doesn't feel like they coasted in any way. And so it just feels like a really well-made movie, Mm. unlike Space Jam, where it just feels like you're like, when's a good time for me to sneak out of the theater to have a cigarette? (laughs) Anytime. At any time. You know what? I I just want to say this. This is not anything to do with Roger Rabbit, but one of the greatest joys in the past few years, and there have been few... (laughs) is watching our generation come to a collective realization once the Space Jam sequel came out that not only is this new movie no good, but my memories of the previous movie were false. Like watching people realize like, oh wait, actually now that I've rewatched it with my kids in preparation for Space Jam 2 colon again with this, they're like, (laughs) oh wait, the first one also was a piece of shit and I can't believe I liked it in the first place. I didn't know that happened. I missed that revelation. I feel like I saw a few people sort of come to that realization, maybe on Twitter or like in podcasts where they're just like, uh, actually, now that I've rewatched it, this isn't a good movie. This isn't very good. If only someone had told them. If only someone had committed it to a podcast five years prior. Some brave warriors. Some brave white men got a (laughs) podcast and set it on tape. We're going to watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit and watch along with us. We'll be right back, dudes. It's a basics podcast. <laughs> I know it wasn't long sections of math class, but I did hate. What if we had from a base eight, you know, numerical system? And I'd be like, I don't know. I that would be stupid. Actually, Why would we do that? The Mesopotamians had a weird finger number system. Have you heard about this? No. So if you like went into a Mesopotamian bar and you did this. <laughs> You would get six drinks. Whoa. Because each knuckle would count as one. So you, if you wanted one drink, you do this, two, three. Isn't that insane? Do we have record of Mesopotamian bars? Well, I was just using that as an example. If you wanted two of something, you would just like raise your finger like that. I want to know more about this Mesopotamian bar. <laughs> <laughs> That's what do I'm saying. Do they stuck have on. karaoke nights? <laughs> they had the first like magic machine but it was cuneiform we like had to match Wait, the pictures oh you know, uh-huh. those little those little stupid games at the bar for the lonely drunks you all know that the animation in roger rabbit who framed roger rabbit is is incredible right mm-hmm. it's the, it's it's renowned you know who else is a renowned cartoonist Jesus. my co-host damon oh. xanthopoulos Thank and you. if you want to give a large portion of money per episode you can get a drawing from damon that's just one of the higher tiers, but that's just one of the tiers of the Patreon page, patreon.com slash your child's an idiot. If you want to become a patron of the show, you get drawings by Damon, you can get songs by me, you can get your name read in the credits, and get your name written in the written credits. You can do none of those things and just get the extra episodes. We've got, I think, eight <laughs> Patreon-exclusive episodes right now. There's more on the way. If you want to learn I about assume. Top Gun colon Maverick... Yeah, we just did Maverick. What else have we watched? The Super Bowl. If you want to hear us talk about football. (laughs) Patreon.com slash your inner child's an idiot. Yeah, do that. (laughs) I'm not going to list things for you. I'm also a, I'm not an animator. I'm just a cartoonist. I feel like. I said cartoonist. I said. I know, I know. But I mean, it's not, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's just different uh, skill set. But there is animation. Sometimes when I look at them, draw the same thing over and over again, just slightly different. I'm like. I'd be all over the place. <laughs> Can't do this. You can trace, though. So. Oh, yeah. I can trace the hell out of something. We're back. We watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Damon's going to recap the movie for you, and go. All right. You remember the movie Chinatown? Just do that, but with cartoons in it. <laughs> Forget it, Jake. It's Toontown. <laughs> Toontown. So, I'll keep it simple. We find out that... 
Roger Rabbit, it's insinuated to Roger Rabbit, a famous cartoon star, that his wife may be cheating on him. He has given pictures from a private detective, Eddie Valiant, our hero. Mm-hmm. And shortly after, the man that she was playing patty cake with, Marvin Acme of the Acme Factory, you might know him as the man who supplies the Wiley e. Coyote with all his tools and accessories, uh, is killed, dropped a safe on his head, which is traumatizing to Eddie Valiant because his brother died from a piano on the head. Eddie Toon Valiant used to, be, used to be a big-time tune-centric detective, private investigator. But after his brother died, he decided to have a career change to a drunk. But then he starts looking into Marvin Acme's murder, and it seems to get bigger and bigger. And he starts to think that Judge Doom, this very villainous-looking judge in Toontown, might be behind it. And lo and behold, he is. And it turns out he was also the, a tune and the tune that killed Eddie Valiant's brother. He turns out to be the most evil cartoon that's ever existed. And we'll talk <laughs> about that more later because I can't stop thinking about it. And my nights are filled with the horror that is Christopher Lloyd in this movie. <laughs> and I'll never sleep again. Tyler was also a very unsettled by Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. I've never been... I think we talked about this on our Witches episode, but for some reason... I was, you and I are both scaredy cats. Yes. If we were in the Scooby-Doo gang, we'd both be somehow in Shaggy's arms. <laughs> <laughs> but the weird thing is like the the weird creepy things in like 80s movies that terrified kids never bothered me. And so like the Grand High Witch and Witches never bothered me. And Judge Doom wasn't, I mean, I, I got that they were imposing. I'm not a sociopath. I just didn't recognize. Have I wasn't taken scared one of those of tests? Are we sure? That's good. With all the faces, and I have to pick which one's the happy one. Actually, and I this, watching, watching this I, movie is part of the sociopath <laughs> test. <laughs> I do take my coffee black, which is apparently also a sign. Uh-oh. I remember watching this at Daniel DeSoto's house when I was a kid, and he was terrified at the end when Judge Doom is flattened by the steamroller and starts Oof. walking around like a deflated, you know, used car dealership airman. And he was like, I don't like this. And I was like, what are you talking about? We're having so much fun. <laughs> That's probably the worst, but there's a lot of those moments in this movie. It's a very like, for a movie that is combined between cartoons and real, and what do you call it? Live action. There's a lot of like visceral, creepy, weird stuff. I mean, it's just inherently creepy, especially like the scenes of Bob Hoskins in Toontown to watch a person who has the dimensions of a human being, assumably has all the organs and bone structure of a human being, watching him being flailed about like, you know, Woody Woodpecker throughout a room is disturbing, like in the elevator when he gets smooshed and then gets thrown about. That's bothersome to me. Well, and they purposefully made it like typically before this, if you had a combination of live action and animation, you do there. Were, I was reading about how they have these like rules of you make everything as 2D as possible. So it kind of like blends and they specifically didn't do that. They like broke the rules because they wanted it to be kind of like a clashing of these two styles of like these two worlds coming together. And it worked because I was very uncomfortable all the time. <laughs> well, I remember I've watched the behind the scenes of this because I love this movie. And I actually saw a documentary about the guy who was the animation supervisor on this, Richard Williams, Dick Williams. And apparently Robert Zemeckis had gone to a lot of different animation studios at the time and been like, hey, how would I do this? And like you were saying, they were like, okay, well, you can't move the camera. I want to keep things, you know, pretty flat. You want to make sure the action is sort of controlled so we know exactly where to draw things. And he was like, I don't want to do do that. I want to film a movie. And so he talked to Richard Williams, who is very... He seems like a very nice man, but he is a very he has very particular views on animation. And so Robert Zemeckis reached out to him and he said, "Hey, I want to do this movie and everyone's telling me I have to can't move the camera in this." And Richard Williams was like, "No, film your movie. We can draw around it." And he's like, "Well, why is everyone telling me I can't move the camera?" And Richard Williams, one of his most famous lines is, "Oh, cuz animators are lazy and they don't want to do that." Richard Williams, I mean, just to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, I watched a whole documentary of him, so I have all this information about him. (laughs) The minutia. He, like, in the 70s, he started working on this movie, this animation movie, called The Thief and the Cobbler, which was going to be sort of this Arabian Nights-inspired animated movie. He was working on it for 20 straight years. And, in fact, he took the job of Roger Rabbit to help finance this movie that is taking so long. Mm. And it helped him keep him afloat for a while, but... Eventually, he he got to a point where he had to sort of like 
make a deal with Warner Brothers to help finance the movie, but the deal involved, if it wasn't done by a certain point, he had to hand the movie over to them. Guess what? The movie wasn't done at that certain point, and Warner Brothers just sort of took what he had, cobbled it together, pardon the pun, and just shipped it out. And it had taken so long that so many animators had worked on it, been fired from it, had left the project, gone on to the project, that when you got it in the video store, because it eventually was just direct-to-video, it looked like a ripoff of Aladdin because it came out around that time. Mm. But there have been so many animators that had started on this movie, and they eventually went to Disney after Disney got its feet back under itself, that a lot of the stuff that they had sort of learned in The Thief and the Cobbler sort of crept into Aladdin. For example, the evil wizard in, in The Thief and the Cobbler is this big, blue, magic-wielding creature that has like a long, pointy beard. Looks very similar to the genie oh. in Aladdin. I remember seeing it as a kid and being like, oh, that's just a, an Aladdin ripoff. But then I watched this whole documentary about him failing to get this movie made and... It's sad a little bit because he is yeah. a very good animator and he is very anti like shortcuts in animation, right, like right. keeping things flat, always keeping things in profile or three quarter view. Like you'll see, like he has a lot of f flourishes in his animation style where he makes things look three dimensional in ways yeah. that you wouldn't have to do in regular animation. Like the one that was pointed out to me recently was the chili bottle in the actual cartoon at the beginning yeah. of the movie. When that big that big shelf covered in pots and pans and one chili bottle, when the chili bottle falls, you could have just had it fall forward or fall to the side, but he has it sort of tilt in direction, like, and then sort of fall towards the camera, which as a person who casually draws, I'm like, absolutely not. I will never do that. What are you, insane? But it makes for a really beautiful animation, but... It yeah, I noticed really that. In complicated the, to do. I didn't know that whole backstory, but that I noticed. I actually made a note here because the the short. There's a Roger Rabbit. We start with a Roger Rabbit short, like one of his in production while in production actually filming yeah. it. And the animation is like very. It's in the style of like your Warner Brothers Tex Avery. Yeah, like the mix of kind of all those things, but it's. It's very much like Wiley e. Coyote, like that kind of like he's getting the shit beat out of him while he chases this baby around. And it reminded me of Buttons and Mindy, I mean, 10 yes. years later from Animaniacs, yes. this babysitter <laughs> having to keep yeah. track of a baby who's just sort of innocently the exact same getting premise. into trouble. Yeah. But the animation is like really, it's a little odd because it's very detailed and, and it's kind of three dimensional. It actually reminded me in this, I don't know if this is going to upset you, but it reminded me a lot of the Chipmunks movie. Not the new ones, but like the animated movie. What is that? The greatest Chipmunks Great Escape or what is that called? Oh, the Alvin and the Chipmunks? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Oh, like the eighties movies that they used to show on TV? Yeah. Like they go to the Aztec mines or something? Is it Alvin and the Chipmunks Great Escape or something? What is it? Chipmunks. You're gonna ruin your algorithm because it's gonna be like you mean ch chipwrecked? <laughs> you mean uh, the squeakwell? Okay, this is, this is a great movie. take. Type louder. The chipmunk adventure is what I'm seeing. Yes. Is that what you mean? I think you're right. I think that's Yeah, what this is. looks familiar. I see these hot air balloons. I remember those. Yeah, that's what it is. And it's like, was he involved in that? Because the animation w reminded me of that. And I didn't even, I haven't seen that since, you know, I was a child. But that was the same vibe. I don't know if he's involved in that in any way. Let me see. All cast and crew. What's his name? Richard Williams or Dick Williams. John Williamson. No, okay. No. Well, anyway, it reminded me of that. It does have, I mean, Tex Avery also, I mean, that it purposefully has like a very Tex Avery vibe, but also, I mean, the dimensions a little of that though. kitchen is out of control. Like the kitchen, you see a full shot of it looks like a normal kitchen, but then there's a, when Roger's being like flown around, it like changes so much perspective. Like the perspective doesn't even make sense. It's like purposefully distorted. So it looks like confusing. There are also a lot of in-jokes in the kitchen, for example. The oven is called Hotter Now, Hotter Than Hell mm. Oven. Made me laugh when I was a kid. I was like, oh, mad reference. references to bad. I can't believe we are allowed to do that. Also, the rat poison is listed as deadly rat poison. and uh, <laughs> It's a really well-animated scene. The whole thing is great. And again, like when baby Herman is like, he gets to the cookies at the top of the fridge, which was his goal the whole time. There's a loaf of bread stacked up and he walks on the bread and each slice like moves out from under his feet so he can't actually gain any traction. But each slice goes one at a time. I feel like in a cheaper cartoon, it would be like the same slice over and over again. They'd cut away and you right. come back and all the slices are gone. Yeah. 
But it was for me, I mean, it's all very impressive, but it's also like discomforting. Like it's all continues that even when we're in straight animation at the beginning, I'm already like, this is weird for some <laughs> reason. And it's the, it's the level of detail. It's that it's almost like it's too, it's in that, like the very beginning of the uncanny Canny Valley. Like we live most of this movie. We're just living, <laughs> but like, it's the very peak before you like crest the hill and go straight down into the rest of the movie <laughs> where they yell cut on the animation. And then all of a sudden it's people and cartoons right. together, the whole rest of the movie, which I really liked. I don't know if this is a joke, but Raul J. Raul, uh-huh. I was like, that very much seems like a name that would be on this. No, it was like, Raul is a very specific, like, 1940s animation director yeah. name. It feels that way. Yeah. What else we got here? They have a, when he's walking through the studio and they have a cattle call. That was funny. Audition. I like that. I like that. That was my first laugh of the movie, <laughs> is the cattle call and they have a bunch of cows waiting to uh, audition. As an animation nerd, I did appreciate that. I mean, there's what sounds like a throwaway joke in Maroon Cartoon's or R.K. Maroon, who is the head of the studio that Roger works for, he says, when Dumbo shows up, he says, I got him on loan from Disney, him and half the cast of Fantasia. And every cartoon you see is like Eddie Valiant's leaving are like animals from the Fantasia, from Fantasia, like the ostrich and the hippo from the Dance of the Hours segment. And then I think some of the little demons from the Night on Bald Mountain, he passes by them. I do really... Oh, and the brooms from Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yeah, to yeah, get a, a jazzy version of Sorcerer's Apprentice. Well, they sweep up with other with real brooms. They are themselves brooms. <laughs> One thing also about the animation that I noticed, especially in the Donald and Daffy scene, I think Donald pretty much his style was already set in the 40s, but Donald's style yeah. or Daffy's style wasn't hardened yet into what we know him as now. And they drew him yeah. in the 40s style where he was a little bit more... Right. Wackadoo. He's a little bit more crazy. Woohoo, woohoo. Yeah. And he's a little more tubular, to borrow a Ninja Turtles phrase. Yeah. He's not as like pronounced as he is now. His head's a little like he's almost yeah. like bowling pin shaped a little bit, like yeah. an upside down bowling pin where his head is wide but like oval and then it comes down to a little neck and then his body is like a little right side up bowling pin. I do appreciate that now that I'm older. I'm like, you not only drew them, you drew them in the style they would have appeared then. And I think you also see uh, Bugs Bunny is the same way. Did you read about that? Because I read about that in the oh, I didn't. IMDb trivia, which as always, <laughs> big grain of salt because there's no vetting of any of that information. But apparently that was like a bone of contention because Disney especially, but Warner Bros. too, they wanted like the modern, how they looked in the late 80s right. when they were kind of have been revamped or, you know, there had been years, 40 years or whatever of animation. They wanted them how they look now. So they did a test with a modern style animation and then when the movie went into production they actually used oh, the how the <laughs> characters would have been in the 40s but now that i'm saying that out loud that sounds like an insane yeah, amount why of don't work you do to twice like, trick the work executives to just get these guys tricked <laughs> but it could be i don't I know i mean it is funny to think about now because you know disney i think i'm in a marvel movie now because disney just owns us all yeah. But like this is the movie that more or less saved Disney animation. I think the reason they agreed to do it is because they were pretty much sort of pushing their animation department to TV. That's why we got shows like Gummy Bears and DuckTales and the like. But they yeah. were sort of stepping away from like feature animation after like the catastrophe that was the Black Cauldron and, you know, Rescuers weren't that big of a hit. So they were sort of like shutting that side down. In fact, I think right before this movie came was going into production, they sort of moved all the animators to this like really terrible building on their their Burbank lot. And they were like, uh, are we going to have jobs in a year? It was a really bad telltale sign for them. So it, it is funny, like. Part of the reason that they agreed to this deal and sharing rights with Warner Brothers and sharing the profits with Steven Spielberg was because they, one, were not in a place they are anywhere close to a place they are now in terms of feature animation. And two, I don't think they really believed in the movie. They were just sort of like, I mean, if you want to do this, go ahead. Okay, whatever. We'll share the profits with you. And then I think... There's a really good podcast on... I think it's called What a Cartoon that I listened to about all these sort of sequels and shorts that to Roger Rabbit that never gained any traction. And part of it was because there was this acrimony between Spielberg, who got the rights to approve anything going forward, including all like roller coaster rides and anything like that, 
there was this acrimony between him and Disney and Disney's like it's a money thing. Once like Disney was able to like sort of get back on their feet and like make the little mermaid and get back to where the beginnings of where they are now, they sort of realized like why are we working with this guy and we don't even get are that many that much of giving the away money. Yeah. I do recommend that episode if you are curious. What a cartoon. They did a whole thing on Roger Rabbit sequels and and the shorts and sort of the the reason why we really didn't get that much Roger Rabbit going forward after this because yeah there was just a what two three two shorts, shorts after this three of like i think the quality is all really good on them but they got in less and less interesting movies as they went on so you got tommy trouble with honey i shrunk the kids then you got roller coaster rabbit with dick tracy and then you got trail mix up with the movie a far off place what is that um it was an excuse to clip african stock footage in with a sort of by-the-numbers story about uh, poaching with Reese Witherspoon in it. That ties into what we were just talking about. Whoa. Wow. Full circle. Pretty insane story. Joanna Cassidy. We might have even talked about this in the intro. I don't remember, but I did not make the connection that that was her in this movie, The Love Interest. Is she... I know, I know her because right on of top this. of that rose. Oh yes, oh yeah. right, yes. That, I know her right from on top of that. Rose. Don't tell yeah. me the babysitter said. Okay. I think that shows our sensibilities, <laughs> at least in the eighties and nineties. Diverging betwixt them. <laughs> yes, she is Rose in Don't Tell Mom. This movie is here, and also she's on. She's in a lot of stuff, but she's in Six Feet Under. Which is also oh funny. yeah, she is in that. She's the insane <laughs> mother. Brenda. <laughs> Her line <laughs> when they're like talking about, you know, Eddie, our main character is, I don't know, sulking or drinking or something. And then he's like, what's eating him? And she's like, Toon killed his brother. I just <laughs> love the way she says that. <laughs> Not deep like that, but that's just, it was very like, it was very I think funny. I appreciated more this viewing, the sort of noir pastiche that this is. Like, it's very over the top in, like, sort of the jazzy slang that keeps popping in. Who swiped my ball? I saw, I heard a kid scream that in, like, one of the the street (laughs) scenes. You hear a kid just say that. That that shot is a very good one. Like, what's his problem? And then she, like, steps into the foreground and says, Toon killed his brother. And then everyone turns around at the bar, like, huh? Yeah. And then she goes, drop the piano on his head. And then they all turn around again. <laughs> it's deranged. It's quite deranged. There is like, I mean, I'm very happy that Robert Zemeckis got to sort of make the movie how he wanted to make it. Because he does sort of like, I mean, it is this very, like almost Frankenstein together animation, cartoon movie, and then this noir movie. Yeah. And they're both, I mean, especially the noir part is really playing up that like Sunset Boulevard, like... We got to wet the streets when we're filming for night. We got to get it all. Get more saxophones in the soundtrack, please. And Alan Silvestri, who actually did the music, also, I think, like, runs this weird gamut between these, like, really bluesy, jazzy songs during the live action portions, and then, like, completely does a 180 for these wacky, insane Looney Tunes, like, soundtracks whenever there's cartoony stuff. And then there's sort of a blend together, like, during car chase scenes where there's, like, these weird symbols and, like, this staccato, like, rhythm going on in one thing, and then just still, like drums and bassoons going on at the same time like this is going to split my head wide open if you keep doing this (laughs) speaking of things i didn't catch in previous watchings but he's in the club where mr acme is there talking to him and he orders paint club the ink and paint club that's right and he orders a scotch on the rocks and then as the (laughs) the waiter's going away he goes i know i mean ice and i was like oh that's funny and then of course later he gets his scotch back and it's got rocks and literal rocks that's good but I just, I don't think I ever caught that before. I think as a kid, it did go over my head. And then I think I asked yeah. my dad. Because I was always the kid who was like, I could tell that a joke is being told. So I'm like, yeah, yeah what's that yeah. mean? He's like, well, you know, if you get a drink, you might say on the rocks to mean that you want it on ice. I'm like, ah. And then I would probably laugh as if I was hearing the joke for the first time. <laughs> because I was uh, maybe precocious. I might have been precocious. Which is maybe yeah, why it's... I recognize it and hate it so much now. I'm like, don't do that, kid. It's not doing yourself <laughs> Any favors. It's aspirational. Like when I would watch, <laughs> even as a teen watching Mystery Science Theater, I'd get probably, I don't know, 60 to 70% of the jokes. <laughs> right. I laughed at all of them. <laughs> it had the cadence 
of a joke. One thing I was surprised by, because Roger Rabbit seems, and this may, we may diverge here, Roger Rabbit seems like a character that would get on my nerves real quick. Oof. And I'm sure in real yeah. life, he would certainly get on my nerves. But he really did make me laugh several times during this whole enterprise. Mostly like with weird casual asides when there's a scene where they're in this this like back room that they used in Prohibition for the bar. And when they're like sort of secreting Roger away. And Bob Hoskins keeps hitting his head on this this lamp. And like the second time he does it, Roger just casually goes, watch your head. And it really makes me laugh because it's just this already this annoyed, probably hungover man trying to hold on to a rabbit that he's currently handcuffed to. And then just a casual, like helpful, watch your head. <laughs> I do like, so in that moment there, when they're handcuffed together, of course, when he starts taking a hacksaw... <laughs> to it roger pulls out his hand and he goes oh does that help and he's like yeah and then he's like what you could why i oughta you could and it was so funny because he was like you could get your hand out the whole time and then roger's like no only when it's funny <laughs> <laughs> like he's got these he, there are rules that he's got to play by like he couldn't have just done it because it was right. like the tension of the movie demanded it there's not a lot of that but there's a couple little things I did laugh at, I called the fireman. He didn't know where your office was. So I asked the green grocer, the butcher, the baker. They didn't know. But the liquor store guy, he knew. He knew. <laughs> also, this is one line that I remember my brother always liking is when Roger's going through the office and he sees like Eddie keeps his brother's like desk like perfectly dusty, but like exactly yeah. the same as it was left when before he died. And he goes, oh, who's this fellow? He looks like a sensitive and sober fellow <laughs> yeah <laughs> i like that everyone is aware that eddie valiant is a complete drunk and has no shame in calling him out on it constantly yeah they're like the police officers later when he goes to the scene of the of the murder they're all the police officers basically just like constantly making fun of him for being an alcoholic which is a little upsetting it's sad <laughs> his brother was murdered and he's been depressed and turning to alcohol about we didn't it. know how to talk about it at the time we were still calling it shell shock we didn't have the tools they do a really great transition at one point because we've already been introduced to eddie valiant and we you know he's already gone on his you know snooping thing gets the pictures of jessica rabbit he borrows a camera from joanna cassidy's character Dolores, which is a name that's now been ruined by Seinfeld. <laughs> but he borrows the ca camera phone. She's like, she says, uh, I haven't gotten the film developed since our trip to Catalina. And Bob Hoskins is like, oh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. We should go back there sometime. And she's obviously bothered by it. And he gets his photos developed for his Snoop job. And like all the pictures of are of him and Dolores and his brother. And then yeah. it like cuts away to the desk and does this really like amazing kind of pan where you pan across his desk. You see all these newspaper clippings, which establish why all those cops at Acme Factory would know who he is because he yeah. was like well known. Him and his brother were well known for like solving these tune cases. And by the time it pans back, like it's morning and Bob Hoskins is asleep. Like passed out on the, yeah. Did you recognize Lieutenant Santana? No, who's that? That was the guy who wakes him up from his drinking stupor to take him to the Acme factory. But you might recognize him as the man that Darth Vader force chokes in oh. episode four. The man who was going to tell us that this. Space station is the ultimate power in the universe, or whatever is whatever he says. Richard Le Parmentier, apparently. Oh, oh, one of your favorites. Cool. I liked when he got force choked, and then when he was in this movie, two of my favorites, and I'm sure other. <laughs> so there's we have to talk about because we we kind of breezed by it a little bit on Judge Doom's first appearance. He. He murders a cartoon shoe, and it is another one of the most upsetting, yeah, horrific thing. This is one. So this is a, how I imagine. Although it was kind of more of a character when the horse dies in a never-ending story, <laughs> I imagine that's how people how people are feeling when I, how I feel when the shoe is murdered. Because I'm just like, well, it's just he's a cute little shoe. So he like puts him in the dip, which yeah. is formaldehyde or whatever the turpentine and mix that. He's going to unleash on all of Toontown. The only thing that may or may not, the only thing the, that can kill Toons, which is essentially, I think the joke is that it's paint thinner. It's turpentine, right, acetin, right. benzene, and I mean, I think that's essentially paint thinner. When he talks about, this is something I did, I've never caught before, but he, as he's doing that, he's talking about how he's going to 
Tunes to Justice, and he mentions trials, and I'm like, that shoe didn't get a trial. Yeah, what was the shoe's crime, sir? Jaywalking, probably. Can we talk about the- Wait, do you want to talk about Judge Doom some more? You want to just- <sighs> I guess. See, that's probably the biggest thing. Or do you want to save that? Do you want that to be your big thing at the end? It's not a big thing. Let's just do it. So he is Christopher Lloyd as Judge Doom. He's, if you haven't seen it, he's decked out in like all black. He's got like a cape and he's got, or is it a trench coat or a cape? No, it's a cape. It's a cape with a little, I don't know. I don't know the terms for capes because people don't wear capes. So you're not at the store going, (laughs) what's this cape? What's this little piece on the cape? It's like, yeah, it's a black- Now you've said cape too many times, and I- (laughs) And it has like a little capelet on top. It has like a second layer. I think, Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a word. And then he has a big wide-brimmed cap. Sunglasses. He even, I mean, he's dressed, he's dressed oddly even for the 40s. Like he's dressed almost like an Amish man. He is dressed, he's got a tiny, like tiny little collar. He's got like a little tiny bow tie. Like he's very out of date even for the 1940s. He looks like someone from the 1910s. Well, and they're like, don't mess with him. He's a judge. And I'm like, then what the fuck is he doing at a crime Great scene? question. That's not how judges work. <laughs> I'm vaguely <laughs> familiar with the judicial system. And I don't yeah. think they usually come to crime scenes and then execute random passersby. Listen. I know this was the 40s, but also I've watched My Cousin Vinny very recently. <laughs> this is not how it works. But yeah, he's he's very – and obviously he's the villain. It's they He's extremely – The music changes, so you know. Creepy. And then at the end, so he is, of course, defeated at the end. But also the way that we figure out that he is a actually a cartoonist, he gets run over by a steamroller and he flattens and then gets up mm-hmm. and that – that flattened version of him, oh, that'll be in my mm-hmm. nightmares for a while. And then, of course, his eyes bugging out because, like, one of the things that Valiant describes is like he remembered from when his brothers were murdered. Like, he didn't know they never caught the tune that killed his brother, but he had these red eyes that were, you know, and a high, squeaky voice. Yeah. And of course, then he has this, like, it's still like Christopher Lloyd's face, but then it's got the bulging eyes, and then they, like, all. Oh, Uh, (laughs) it can be nightmare fuel i do one of the things i noticed this time is that because we learned from roger like tunes are supposed to make people laugh like that's why they exist Mm -hmm. and this time i noticed that there are elements about judge doom that don't not over the top but subtly hint that he is a tune himself he does this thing when in that bar scene where there's like a, the specials menu has a French dip for 50 cents. Nice deal on a French dip. <laughs> First off, he takes a veteran's empty sleeve because that veteran had lost his arm in the war, takes it, erases French, and then writes rabbit dip. But he writes it purposefully, you know, pushing the chalk into the chalkboard to create, you know, this terrible sound. I'm like, that is very kind of like toony. Like it's cruel and shows yeah. like he's an asshole, but it's also like a right. little zany. <laughs> It's a little Bugs Bunny. Yeah, exactly. It's like something like Bugs Bunny or even 1940s Daffy Duck would do, like just being obnoxious for the sake of being obnoxious. And then later in the the climactic scene in the factory, there's all these balls, like because of a skirmish or whatever, these balls like fall out into these tiny little marbles fall out onto the floor. And at one scene when he's giving this great monologue, he sort of slips on them. And as a kid, for some reason, like, oh, they... Kept that in. That's weird. Even though I knew how this would progress. Later, he falls on them, but he does not fall on them like a human would fall on them. Right. He floats in space. He floats above them and sort of just wiggles his legs back and forth. And they must have like rigged him up to do it. Like it was a conscious choice to like, let's make it look like a cartoon falling. And this is the first time I've actually caught it, but it is kind of like, oh, because he is a cartoon. Right. Yeah. But he also like has cartoons working for him. Like for somebody who wants to like wipe out all of cartoon kind, it was kind of interesting that he has these weasels working for him. I mean, there are many people in history that have sided with their own oppressors, hoping to gain even a modicum of power. So it doesn't, and even tune, you know, doom himself yeah. is, you know, right. Well, and while we're on the subject, there's a lot of what's the word I'm looking for. There's a lot of ways this aligns with segregation and with like having a part of town that tunes are are relegated to. There's like, you know, they're talking about building the highway to like block it off. They're talking about- Taking it out from under them now that it's like prime real estate. I mean, that's a very common story in American real estate history. Yeah. 
I definitely never caught that. This time I'm like, okay, this is so very familiar. Well, even the the Ink and Paint Club, I mean, it wasn't uncommon in the 40s to have yes. places where it was white customers only and then an entirely black, you know, talent staff for the, the band review. And, yeah. the, and the wait staff, they're all tunes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't, that certainly wasn't uncommon. There were plenty of people buying Nat King Cole records and then voting for policies that were explicitly racist. <laughs> Not uncommon. Right. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the more interesting things. I mean, it is, I think, you know, you could you could pair it with any number of, like, oppressed groups, but I think explicitly it would be, like, you know, a correlation to black segregation and, and that way that we as white people often will, you know, praise black people for talents in singing, athleticism, comedy, and acting, and then, you know, dismiss them in any regard outside of those, those realms. Right. And that's very much what tunes... Are treated like they're treated like comic, literal comic relief, but then yeah. not, you know, their needs and their own ability to govern themselves is not respected. And so you send in this man who, in the end, is revealed to be a tune himself, but you know, a human man who is then just executing them at will, you know, uh, taking this very like draconian form of justice towards them to rein in the insanity, to quote Judge Doom. Yeah, it's very interesting. However, <laughs> I don't know if it entirely this often happens when there is like this metaphorical thing in movies where it's like isn't this a lot like, you know, what we do to queer people or what we do to black people? But then if you follow the logic of the movie, you're like, yeah, well, I see what you're saying and I, you know, points so for you. We are the cartoons, <laughs> is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, I thought of like for example, X-Men where, you know, there's sort of this yeah, metaphor right. oftentimes for any oppressed group, you know, you can sort of like look through the X-Men lens. But like, you know, there oftentimes it's queer people or at least I've often like related to the idea like uh, X-Men are like a corollary for queer people. But like I don't want the government keeping track of queer people just because they're queer. But if there was a person who could control the atmosphere and create storms and fly oh, around, here we go. I feel like yes, it might be in our here best interest. Here comes old George Wallace <laughs> Anthopoulos. Might be in our best interest to keep track of this woman who can control storms, or this guy who shoots lasers from his eyes. Like it doesn't necessarily. Ugh. track every time if you follow the so logic. you're in the Magneto camp. I get it. I no, get that would it. mean I just want mutant supremacy and all humans killed, which I also, maybe I'm an incrementalist when it comes to mutants. <laughs> Listen, moderates are bullshit, okay? <laughs> Doesn't work. So I think with like tunes, like I certainly don't want them murdered, but they are like wacky and insane. And there's like, when you get to Toontown, it does seem kind of insane. Whew. Yeah. So sometimes the the metaphor starts to crumble on itself when you like follow it to its logical conclusion. But you'll catch good bits though if you look around. Oh like, no, Toontown Town is rife with like, and this yeah. is even before the DVD pause like function. Like right, videotapes like even if you got it on the right point, like the tracking bar would always be say? the yeah. wrong right. When I was, I'm trying to read that poster tracking bar. You know, I'm trying to read that poster. <laughs> you did this on purpose. <laughs> But yeah, the first thing that happens is the like Rex's car, and it's into the, a, a truck that says "Acme Overused Gags." <laughs> and it was like, what is it? Because it's like a bowling, and bowling ball bells, and an yeah. anvil. It was very good. Can we talk about just the general sexualization of cartoons? You want to this? talk about Baby Herman? Not penis? just yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a line. So Baby Herman comes to talk to Valiant, and this is the cigar smoking, rough voiced baby that was in the short right. with Roger Rabbit at the very beginning of the movie. And of course, off screen, he's like, "Yeah, yeah, whatever." Toots, and uh, he says something of like, "I've got a thirty year old's libido with a what does he say?" Something about his penis, Yeah, he, uh, Eddie Valiant goes, ah, after his wife leaves, he goes, ah, ladies man, huh? And he's like, yeah, my problem is I got a 50-year-old lust and a three-year-old dinky. Yeah, dinky. dinky. That's the word I was looking for. I do appreciate that it is, that made me it very is a very childlike name for a penis. Yeah, it did make me, and of course, naturally, it only makes me think of this baby having sex with this hum- fully grown human woman. <laughs> so that's odd, to say the least. Don't like that. Raises a lot of ethical questions. I guess he's an adult mentally, so I mean, I shouldn't have any qualms, but it's still a baby having sex with a woman, a fully grown woman. He's also gambling, which I'm concerned about. (laughs) And then, of course, there's Jessica. Jessica Rabbit is probably, yeah, I mean, what did you think about Jessica Rabbit? Well, she's not bad. Mm. She's just drawn that way. That's a good point. Very sexual, Mm. very 
like everyone like valiant caesar and you know it's his, his jaws on the floor and it makes me very uncomfortable the whole thing i think as a kid i was also very uncomfortable probably because i had no interest in what i felt like the movie wanted me to be interested in in jessica rabbit there is this way she is like too it is too like it is like well beyond like it's ridiculous in the in the intentional sense right. like they went so sexualized with her that it's almost back around to like okay this is i mean it's a cartoon right like and i think most importantly we take away from her talking about it and betty boop talking about it like roger rabbit fucks right is that the yeah that's uh, that, that is something i picked up on this viewing is that uh apparently roger rabbit is a good fucker as a rabbit you would expect actually when you think about it you know rabbits are known well, for I'd expect, fucking i expect frequency not necessarily like skill yeah when um <laughs> you know of course when eddie valiant goes to see a performer named jessica rabbit he is expecting a second rabbit and of course this right. humanoid animated buxom babe comes out it's just her last name she took right last of course name. i mean she's a good christian woman <laughs> <laughs> and he goes what does he say oh she's married to roger rabbit and betty yeah. boop says yeah what a lucky girl and then later in Toontown, Eddie Valiant's car gets stolen and he, he and she, you know, there's all this wreckage in the street and Jessica Rabbit says, from the look of it, I'd say it was Roger. My honey bunny was never very good behind the wheel. And Eddie says, a better lover than a driver, huh? Like sarcastically. And she goes, you better believe it, Buster. And I was like, what in the hell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's not as explicit, I didn't mind that as much, but the sexualism of Jessica Rabbit and Baby Hermit just made me like... Uh, just another just another thing on the list of things that made me Well, the, the weird thing about Jessica Rabbit, I mean, I feel like they are commenting on they are sort of playing on the noir female, like, you know, the the yes. the Lauren Bacall type, you know, walking into the detective agency. So they're playing that up, but it's almost like it's kind of like in the scream mold where they're not like they're not subverting it, they're just sort of calling attention to it. And there's nothing wrong right. with that per se, but you know when when it is so overly sexualized, and Jessica Rabbit doesn't seem to really have a reason to exist aside from being this vessel for heterosexual Bombshell. male yeah. lust. It does get a yeah. little uh, overbearing in this day and age to to sort of see her. She doesn't really seem to have much agency or personality outside of being a femme fatale and being gorgeous. Yeah, when it was like there's a moment where you suspect her because there's right. a gun you know that goes off and it kills mr maroon and then she runs She's on away the scene and, and she hits roger she, with a frying pan yeah but it's, it's all to protect roger <laughs> right and from the actual murder but it's also like yeah that, that's a weird way to do it <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, it's, it's very roundabout but she's also a cartoon you have to remember she does things to make that's people true. laugh or i guess whack off <laughs> yeah I don't want to think about that too much. Oh, can we? I just wanted to, the weasels, they're, they're, I want to talk about the weasels yeah. just really briefly. These are sort of tune, uh, Judge Doom's henchmen. Mm -hmm. I do like, I think he's called Lieutenant Smartass in the credits, who's the one in like the pink suit, the one main one who talks, who gets all these sort of malapropisms throughout the, the movie. And he says, we got a reliable tip off that the rabbit was here and it was corrugated by several letters. Which I think as a kid I didn't pick up on, but now I, I really right. like. He also points out that nose doesn't rhyme with walls, but then when Eddie Valiant kicks him in the balls, it makes you laugh. That does. But there is also a Latino, I think, Latino or Latinx coded weasel, which is, and I believe he's also known as Greasy in the credits. Oh, Jesus. Not, and he's very Lothario-like. He's the one who wants to put his hands down just because... Top, he gets the booby trap on his hand. That's a little gross. And there's a Native American bullet. Eddie Valiant has a gun that he got from Yosemite Sam, has six Western stereotype bullets, one of which is unfortunately a Native American who does like the, I don't even want to do it. You yeah. know what I mean? The hand to mouth yeah. thing. Yeah. Although the other bullets I really like, because one of them is like one of the guys from Green Green Acres. He's got He's, the, the, the I ain't like seen you from now on to five years. Yeah. I also, uh, with the weasel, I was just going back to the weasels for a second. Uh, part of the problem there was like, I couldn't understand what they were saying ever. <laughs> yeah. Just the way the voice, I mean, I think, and it could have been my TV or whatever, but the mix was a little hard to understand for me. And I actually remember that, like not catching some of that before. I wouldn't have known that it was the mix, quote unquote, but I, <laughs> I was like, this is so zany. And I'm sure, you know, he just said something that had the cadence of a joke, but I don't. 
I don't know what's going on. You know, you're right. I mean, I think, I can't tell if it was just because I was, I mean, I watched this a lot as a kid, so I would, I misheard a lot of lines in this movie. I don't know if it's because it's like this arch noir dialogue was going over my head and I just sort of pieced together what I thought they were saying, or if it's just like a bad mix or, or something. Yeah, I, one of the things, I mean, all the weasels are kind of funny, but you never really, you could, probably could have gotten away with three weasels rather than I think there's five of them. And yeah. I, most of them don't have, I'm I'm always like, whenever I'm watching, I'm always one to watch the cigarette weasel who always has at least six cigarettes in his mouth at any time. And he's coughing and wheezing, but you never actually get a close up of him. He's just sort of always in the background. I'm like, what's he doing? I want to know what he's what's doing. What's his deal? And then crazy. My brother always liked crazy who's the one in a literal straitjacket, who says, time to kill the rabbits. Creepy. Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. There's the bit when Doom is in the bar, like looking and he knows Roger Rabbit is there and he's like hiding in the, behind the wall and he does the shave and haircut. So he's just like- And unresolving it. He knows that Roger won't be able to resist and Valiant's, you know, looking through the wall and being like, there's no way he's going to fall for this. And then he looks over at Roger and he's just like, he can't contain himself. <laughs> it I, is a good thing. I did really, I like that. He's a cartoon. It's funny. What do you think of Bob Hoskins' song and dance routine? I mean, he's a Olympic level grumpus in this movie. So it is very charming to see him like sort of do this big song and dance number. I did wonder, I'm like, you still have human bones. Like, you can't just throw things on your own skull from, like, 10 feet in the air. You can't electrocute yourself. I think it was because of the proximity to Toontown. Ah, uh, yeah, he got some power. of that juice back. Yeah. Toontown, I mean, <laughs> the laws of biology usually have real estate limits, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is also one of the premises of American Horror Story Murder House, is that apparently ghosts can't leave certain real estate plots. Yeah. Sorry, them's the rules. I didn't come up with the afterlife. They got kids. It's a good school zone, you know. <laughs> I also, I'm very charmed when Roger comes out of the sewer at the, like when he breaks into the factory and he's like holding up the weasels. He's got a gun in his hand for some reason. And he leaps, he almost does this like Errol Flynn like leap over to Jessica Rabbit. And he says, yes, it's me, my dearest. I'd love to impress you. But first I have to satisfy my sense of moral outrage. <laughs> very charming. Oh, I also, um, there's a lot of will talk in this movie where they're trying to find Mr. Acme's will because right. theoretically he left Toontown to the tunes, but there's no legal evidence of that. So there's probate court talk. Kids love probate court. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the first time when I actually knew what probate was in, in the movie. I'm like, I assume that's something. As a kid, I was like, I, I can't even pick up on what that's <laughs> yeah. about. But I did know that the line, my Uncle Thumper had a problem with his probate, and he had to take these big pills and drink lots of water. <laughs> that's I do like that Roger I, Rabbit I is canonically related to Thumper from Bambi. Yeah, it makes sense. The rabbits. Yeah, you, you get it. Tyler did ask, who do you think would play Eddie Valiant if this movie was made today? And I was like, oh, probably Chris Pratt or Ryan Reynolds. Like some like stone cold hottie, not this little yeah. goblin that we borrowed from England to come over and play our private investigator. <laughs> but what did you think of what did you think of Bob Hoskins? It must have been hard to act against nothing. Absolutely. So I think he did his level best. <laughs> and you know, he's a good grumpus. He is a good grumpus. So yeah, I like him. His his song and dance routine was he didn't really sing. No, it was almost almost borderline rapping. <laughs> yeah. Just Kind of makes it fun and also kind of makes him go like, you can't hit any notes. None of them? You're not going to go for any of them? (laughs) Any of them? Maybe he did and they were like, you know what? We don't need to do that. We can get the idea across if you just whack yourself on the head and rap. But yeah, he, you know, he's a foil to Roger and I thought he did a pretty good job. The whole, the scene where he's handcuffed Roger and he has him like under the water, like pretending to do his laundry in the sink. That's some pretty good acting with, you know, where there must have been nothing there. Well, I think there was a robot that would come up and spit water out occasionally. Oh, nice. That is part of it. So he was acting to, at least he knew where Roger theoretically would be from this big pipe that would come up every once in a while and spit water out. I mean, it's no no Super Mario Brothers. No, I mean, but what is? You get the star power of Dennis Hopper and the, you know, the beauty of Samantha Mathis. And of course, Fisher Stevens. I mean- The fish. The fish. Fish sting. That's all I have on Roger I think that's pretty much what I had as well. (laughs) D 
DJ. Yes. What did you think of Roger Rabbit? What's your verdict? That's the terminology we use. Okay. It's it's hard for me to do the the normal kind of verdict because here's the deal. The way that they animated this, the way that they put it all together is incredible. It's a feat. It was a true feat. There's some really funny bits. There's some some interesting like plot twist kind of things, the play on the noir genre, the play on animation and stuff. I like all that. It's really clever. I am so uncomfortable with this movie and I hate it. So I'm going to have to say your inner child is an idiot because I don't want to ever want to see this again. I was right to be uncomfortable. <laughs> and having said that, like you're going to, I know that you love this movie and I, and I kind of know what you're going to mm-hmm. say. And I agree with all mm-hmm. of it, but the end result is like, yeah, but let's not. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do appreciate you doing this podcast with me. It's been 169 <laughs> episodes, so you know we got you. You know we got to put it. a good dent in it. Time put a sunset good it. Dent in it. Of course, your inner child is not an idiot. DJ's an idiot. But <laughs> I mean, I know what you're saying. I think you know. I mean, Robert Zemeckis also gave us Death Becomes Her, another body horror movie. Yeah, I love this movie. This movie's great. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, we were talking when we watched Dick Tracy, which I kept saying to the point that I think I was getting a dime every time I said it. I kept saying mob movie pastiche, gangster movie pastiche, 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 pastiche. And I did make a joke at the beginning that this is essentially Chinatown. I actually tried to refresh my memory of the plot of Chinatown, and it is remarkably similar. It involves real estate. It is. Taking land and a affair with some twists. Like there's, you know, he gets hired to look at a guy saying if he was having an affair and then it turns out like the woman who hired him it wasn't actually his wife was just pretending to be the guy's wife and then that guy ends up dead Hmm. it's a great movie i love it i mean it is a bit of a pastiche like a noir pastiche but i mean it's a great like fun movie about animation it i feel like there are a lot of times and we've seen it several years after with space jam and the like of like what if we did this just real shitty and i feel like this doesn't (laughs) do that that i think there is a darkness to it which is Maybe part of what I respond to and part of what maybe pushes you away. It is a little creepy, (laughs) but I think one of the things I appreciate is that like, yeah, I think if we lived in a world where there are cartoons around who could be bashed over the head would be a little creepy. I love this movie. No notes. 10 out of 10 would visit again. Service was great. I love it. And it's like one of the great, like weird, I feel like it's a little bit of a, I might've said this in the intro. I can't remember. We recorded it a month ago, but it's like one of those, like a little, not in completely forgotten, but it is one of those ones. Like whenever I mention it, people are like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But ah, it's such a good movie. I love it. Well, I think we have to talk a little bit too. Like both of us recently watched the Chippendale rescue Rangers. Yeah. Like, reboot movie that's that's sort of the mo- I feel like I would have to watch it again with a more critical eye after watching this but like it's the modern version of the try hard version of <laughs> combining animation and live action like they're like what if I gave a shit and like tried to make like the premise is is kind of contingent upon that tension between the the live action and the cartoon and then of course in Chip and Dale they, they add in the 3D animation right, the versus computer the 2D yeah, yeah. So it would be good to like visit that like now having watched this because it does have who framed Roger Rabbit has a tremendous legacy like of just all the things that they did to pull it off. And I still don't want to watch it ever again. <laughs> it does have I mean, th- this is I mean, it is weird to think about like there is a legacy to it that I think is sort of unspoken in that. We got Disney sort of bounced back from this and had the money suddenly to make things like The Little Mermaid and then eventually Beauty and the Beast and going on from there. And then also you saw Steven Spielberg still sort of dipped into animation himself. We got Tiny Toon Adventures after this, which has a very similar premise. Both Tiny Toon Adventures Mm -hmm. and Animaniacs both have a very similar premise in that they tie into classic animation. And even Animaniacs is about like toons living in our world. There are three cartoons yeah. who live in the Warner Brothers Tower and come down and wreak havoc amongst us. Like it's a very similar like- All premise. that like Disney afternoon stuff was like repurposed characters. You know, DuckTales is right. like they grab Donald Duck and be like, what situation can we put him in? Like Huey, Dewey, and Louie were from the, you know, the comics and the, the cartoons. And then, you know, Chip and Dale and then Tailspin. Tailspin they like, yeah. were like, what can we do with all these IP- with all oh, this IP, IP and brands and franchises. Yeah. yeah, it is it is a big, very long legacy. I mean, even Steven Spielberg at the time was not like batting a thousand himself until 
a few years later with Jurassic Park. He was sort of in at least a directorial. He was doing all right. Yeah, he's all right. But he was like in a slump <laughs> directorially, but producer-wise, he was hitting mm. it out of the park all over the place. This should be remembered more than it often is, I feel like. What do you think, everybody? Call us, 615-576-0525. You can leave a message or text us. We will take emails. Your inner child is an idiot at gmail.com. We will take emails. <laughs> I don't know. What? I said we, and then I had to I had to salvage that <laughs> beginning of that sentence. So I went with, we will take emails. Our people will check your emails. We we get an email, so email us. Uh, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash your inner child is an idiot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we want to thank our current patrons, including Jeremy Powlin. Right at the top. Lindsay Alice Halleck. Larissa Maestro. Karen Kurd. Heather Tuggle. Travis Vance. Demons of Stringy Nixie. Jonathan Day. Captain John Luke Picard. Lindsay Nell. The Hands of Fate. Dan McIntyre. A man I met yesterday. Jackson has an unhealthy obsession with Damon. Ugh, and what a time it was. <laughs> Times were had. The Elusive Fan Gromkin, who no one has met. Does he exist? He's we elusive. just don't know. Shit on the cartouche. <laughs> Josh Frigo. Another person I met. The supreme ruler of this podcast. Josh Frigo is the supreme ruler of this podcast, is what I meant to say. Dramatically placed hot dog. His honor the mayor. Beth Sermont. David Mort. Just cause. Scalphosaurus. Dr. Malcolm's heaving bosom. Particle Man. T. Smith. And the Zesty. Thank you all very, very much. If you want to support like them, patreon.com slash your inner child is an idiot. And I'd like to thank all the patrons who also gave us names that intrinsically must be read with a voice. Like Captain Jean-Luc Picard <laughs> and Dr. Malcolm C. McBossum. Every time, and if I try and say it in normal, I feel like I'm I'm ripping people off, you know? Yeah. And uh, I just want to say you're welcome for not reading that in Roger Rabbit's voice. <laughs> you're welcome, everyone. <laughs> Please. 